Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. I don't even think I can continue because you did it completely wrong. But I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please uh, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Our guest today is Tamara Winter. Welcome to the program, Tamara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I I wanted to have you on for a while because you were an interesting thinker on many topics, but you recently started a new gig, which has something to do with charter cities. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is all about? What's a charter city? Yeah. So I joined the Center for Innovative Governance Research, where I now work back in, I guess it was the middle of October. Um, And so what the center does is work to build the ecosystem for charter cities. And so a charter city is a new city with a special jurisdiction that grants it a blank slate or close to it in commercial law. And so with that blank slate, the city is then able to adopt the best practices in commercial law as best approximated by the World Bank's ease of doing business index. And so that index measures, well, exactly what it sounds like, the ease of doing business within a given economy. And that accounts for factors like um, the time and expense required to start a business to the ability to enforce contracts. So consistently, the countries which do the most to eliminate or reduce transaction costs inherent to entrepreneurship end up boasting the strongest performing economies. So charter cities allow you to apply these insights on like a city level context. Right. So and as I understand it, the idea is basically not that we would be putting a new city in Nebraska or whatnot, although maybe we would, but that this would be something that could be done in developing countries that don't have strong institutions. And this would be kind of a, a, a workaround to try and promote development. What, what exactly is the goal? That's right. So one, I should say, I would be totally in favor of putting a charter city in Nebraska. So we'll start there. But yes, we target low and middle income countries specifically because these are usually places that don't have a history of good governance, especially as it relates to the institutions that matter when you're um, sort of trying to jumpstart an economy. So places that we're looking at right now where we're like actually working um, are Zambia, a new city development called Nkwashi, just outside of Lusaka, the capital, and then a very early stage project in Honduras, and then a couple of others in the pipeline as well. Yeah, so the idea is that you could import good institutions and in doing so, jumpstart an economy. My recollection is that charter cities, I think the idea man or whatnot, uh, the kind of founding father, if you will, behind the idea was uh, Paul Romer. Uh, Maybe it still is Paul Romer. But I recall a lot of talk about charter cities maybe five, six, seven years ago. And then it kind of, you know, maybe a lot lot of people in the media lost interest and the idea never really went away. But it seemed like there were some initial difficulties with the just getting the host countries to agree to it. What are some of the challenges in setting up these charter cities and making it work? Yeah, so Paul Romer was sort of the originator of the idea of charter cities, and he popularized it first in a 2009 TED Talk, which um, people can go listen to. I think it's really enlightening and interesting. Um, but I think the sort of fatal flaw in that conception of charter cities is the idea that you should have a guarantor country um, sort of administering the charter city in that lower middle income country. And so that smacks to a lot of people of, you know, um, a new form of like neocolonialism. And so you want to, of course, avoid that because charter cities, for them to work, you want to make sure that you've got buy-in. You want charter cities to be a 
point of pride for the local residents, the citizens, the host country, etc. So it was first tried in both Honduras, which is the only city in the world that actually has charter cities legislation on the books, and in Madagascar. And so in passing the Honduras legislation, there was a bunch of political drama, which we don't have the time to rehash right now. But the first um, form of that legislation was eventually ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It had to be repassed. And then it also went through another constitutional challenge. And then that time, the Supreme Court upheld it. So that's called the Zeta regime. And that's still in the books today. And then in Madagascar, the the situation was much more complicated. But again, um, it failed. Wasn't there like a uh, the government fell. Yeah, there was like a small coup, but we don't actually know if we can attribute that to the um, to the charter city. So yes, not to minimize what happened in Madagascar, but it was a quite complicated situation. And so part of what these early failures demonstrate is the need to have a bunch of different stakeholders and the relevant stakeholders being people like entrepreneurs, right? So there are lots of entrepreneurs all around the world who would like to put their business ideas into practice and are always looking for new places to do so. If not most in those countries where you'd want to see charter cities spring up. Um, you have your, of course, your host country's government, and you want the stamp of approval from the government in the form of charter cities legislation. There are economists you want to be able to evaluate charter cities to see if they work, on what margins, what lessons can then be cross-applied in other contexts. You want to make sure that you've got multilaterals like the World Bank, the IMF, etc., that are interested in charter cities, regional development banks as well. And so rather than trying to implement charter cities through any one of these institutions, you want to have them all on board. And so what the Center for Innovative Governance Research does is work to be the shelling point for all of these different stakeholders, right? So we want to give them a shared mental model of what a charter city is and the benefits that it can bring to first the city that it's implemented in and then the host country broadly, and two, work to actually facilitate the building of teams that can create charter cities in a local context. So of course, we don't build charter cities ourselves. We don't have a lot of that important local knowledge that you need to know the conditions on the ground, the economic conditions, the kind of industries that would be best for an area, and then the local politics situation. So we work with the people who do know those things and then bring together all the other stakeholders as well. You mentioned uh, entrepreneurs. So how is a charter city different than, say, a master plan community? And, you know, for instance, I, I recall years ago, I know you're from, from Dallas, years ago, I was driving between Dallas and Fort Worth and I passed through Southlake. Just after all these fields, there suddenly was like this brand new town square being built. And years later, you know, it's developed into, you know, a real thriving community. How is a master plan community or something like Southlake different than what a charter city would do? Yeah. So if Southlake were a charter city, we would see, well, the main innovation of a charter city is that blank slate in commercial law, or again, like close to it in commercial law. So for example, Southlake was able to to set its own tax rates, if it was able to make decisions about like permitting, the ease of permitting, the ease of registering a business, et cetera, et cetera. If they had actual jurisdiction over all of those things, then we could say it's a charter city. So the master planned element is one element of how you build a charter city, but that's much more important to like the infrastructure side of things rather than like the governance side of things. So that's the appreciable different. This gets into, I think, some very deep and difficult questions about why it is that some countries seem to work so much better than others, right? So, you know, the classic example of this is you go down not too far from here to the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso. And on one side, you've got El Paso. On the other side, you've got Juarez. Obviously, they're right next to each other geographically. Climate and everything is is the same. Even El Paso is majority Hispanic, uh, as is, of course, Juarez. So there's all, all sorts of similarities, cultural 
rural natural resources or whatever. And yet, if you are in El Paso, prosperity income levels are much higher than in Juarez. If you interface with the criminal justice system, not that the American criminal justice system is great, but you know, if it's talking about governmental corruption and other things like that, much better on the American side of the border. So this is something that I think a lot of people have puzzled over. You know, if you have a country that's not doing so well, why don't they just look to the countries that are doing better and adopt their institutions and become you know prosperous and uh, successful? Yeah, I totally agree with that entire assessment. This is really the question that's been puzzled over by people from, you know, Asimoglu and Douglas North and just lots of different economists are always asking questions about exactly what makes the difference between a Singapore and a Nigeria where I was born. And I can't answer that question. Like, why, why don't countries just, yeah, like I, I look at Nigeria's economic fate, right? We've got more oil than any other country in the region, more natural resources, you know, a really smart populace. And yet its economic trajectory is ridiculous, right? So this is the question. But one thing we know that is it's difficult to make these reforms usually at a national level first. One example that I've been puzzling over a lot recently is Shenzhen. So Shenzhen in the context of China, which we know um, had like the greatest reduction of poverty that the world has ever seen in that amount of time. And so Shenzhen, before a lot of the reforms trickled up to the national level, Shenzhen was experimenting with things like introducing a market for land and introducing markets into the price system, implementing a, a labor contract system, which never existed in China before, reforming state-owned enterprises. Oh, and just to provide context to your listeners, so Shenzhen was one of four special economic zones that was declared under Deng Xiaoping after the Cultural Revolution ended in China. And it just became a lightning rod for foreign direct investment. And it really was kind of like the test market for China and implementing or at least shifting to a more market-oriented system. And so usually implementing these reforms at a national level can be quite difficult. It can be politically costly. And it's also difficult to do in places where there are already people living there because there are entrenched interests. And so that's why we focus specifically on greenfield sites. So these are new cities without these sort of deep entrenched political interests. And they're also, again, limited geographic areas. So it's easier to make reforms. And if something's not working, scrap it. And you haven't jeopardized an entire economy in the process. There seems to be a lot of waves of immigrants that are running from war-torn zones. Has there been any thought internationally to to using charter cities as a way to, like, for instance, to, to rebuild communities after wars in places like Syria? Yeah. So there's several organizations that that work on this. The one that I'm most familiar with is called Refugee Cities, and it is headed by a friend of ours, a friend of the center, Michael Castle-Miller, and they work on exactly this. But what's difficult oftentimes with making policy for refugees is that usually, or an organization like the UN might place restrictions on whether or not refugees are legally able to work in an area. A host country that takes in refugees themselves might place restrictions on whether or not refugees are able to to actually work and contribute. And then there are countries that are trying to pilot reforms themselves. So for example, Ethiopia, I'm not incredibly familiar with um, the reforms in like a super detailed way, but Ethiopia is trying to integrate its refugees into the economy wholesale. So like like not building a camp for them and saying, okay, we'll just give you guys a special jurisdiction, but just integrate them with the economy. So it's a difficult question because there are a lot of different, again, political stakeholders here. But I would like to see that become part of the conversation in the future. Right now, we work with private actors because it's much easier to get things done. Large organizations tend to be quite bureaucratic. But I think in the future, there's definitely an opportunity to open up that conversation on a much broader scale. And I'll hope for that. This is related, but shifting the topic a little bit. I recall recently on Twitter, 
you were posting images from, I guess it was maybe a, was it a Starbucks? I was a shopping mall or something. And you were trying to get people to guess where you were. And I don't know, they were saying, you know, maybe it was uh, Dallas or Atlanta or whatever. Was it Johannesburg? Is yes, that that's right. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, the, the, the point being that pretty much wherever you go in the world, strip malls kind of look alike. Yes. <laughs> uh, what do you think explains the gravitation towards that particular type of model, which, you know, a lot of people find aesthetically objectionable or displeasing uh, for a variety of sorts of, of reasons, I guess. Um, so two different distinctions there. So that was actually in the Mall of Africa, which was like the big attraction for that area. So when we got to Johannesburg, uh, we were told, you've got to go to the Mall of Africa. It's an amazing attraction. And you get there and it looks like you're in LA. It looks like you're in Dallas. It looks like you're in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. So it looks like every other mall that you've ever been to. I also object to the idea that the mall should be the center point of your city but that that is for another time. So I think it's part of what, his name is Kyle Chagas. He wrote a great article. I'm forgetting in which outlet now, but this is maybe a year and a half ago or so about the Airbnbification of architecture. And it's basically like this ready-made sort of model of interior design that is just everywhere now. And so you go to a new city and cities feel much less like, like Johannesburg doesn't feel like when we were in the downtown core anyway, it didn't feel like distinctively South African in a way that say New Orleans might feel distinctively Cajun. And I think part of that is for two reasons. One, cities which are developing in the area in the era of cars everywhere, like car ubiquity, just don't have the chance to develop these like distinctive geographic footprints that you see in cities that developed before cars. So you'll see a lot of times urbanist Twitter will post a beautiful picture from like Amsterdam or somewhere in um, Scandinavia of people just like enjoying a nice bike ride in their like mixed use, beautiful development. And most of these places, again, developed before there were lots of cars everywhere. So I don't think we'll ever have, so this is not just about like the aesthetic quality of the place that you're talking about, but also like whether or not you can walk around that place, right? To get to the Mall of Africa, you have to drive down a highway that feels like you're on 75 in Dallas. And then there's also the idea that like, as travel becomes a bigger source of um, cities' income streams, you want to offer an experience that feels culturally distinctive enough that you recognize that, okay, I am in South Africa right now. There is something that John's gives me that St. Dallas couldn't give me, but also is familiar enough such that, you know, people can recognize it and not feel totally overwhelmed in your city. So I think those two things are working in play. Now, strip malls in the U.S. are a different story, I guess, entirely, because part of that is going to be like things like minimum parking requirements that so many regulations that basically separate where you're allowed to build residential property versus things that have to be zoned for commercial. There are also like changes that are enshrined in law in the U.S. that don't exist other places that make our strip malls, I think, uniquely ugly. Uh, but other people might disagree about that. Well, I don't know. Doug, are the strip malls in Houston beautiful? <laughs> Uh, as long as as long as products are flying off the shelves, absolutely, because that's what they matters. Don't, they, they don't have any zoning, right? Uh, yeah, we don't really have zoning in Houston. You certainly do in the suburbs. Places like Sugarland are you know have a lot of zoning, a lot of restrictions on everything has to be in red brick. But you, but you get into Houston proper, and there's you know we're sort of famous for not having zoning. So maybe we're sort of an exception to uh, you know. There's this this article that was at the unbearable sameness of cities. I think Houston can be. Uh, maybe an exception to that. It can be pretty different at times. 
Yeah, and I think you'll also want to note, again, just like things like minimum parking requirements and, again, developing an era where cars are ubiquitous, right? So that's also part of the story. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Do you want to talk about any other cities? <laughs> yeah, I actually... San Francisco? Oh, San Francisco, gosh. <laughs> well, there was a great article today posted in National Review by Michael Gibson on how San Francisco is like slowly killing itself. San Francisco was a jarring experience for me. I went for the first time in December and I was pretty excited to go. California's beautiful. I'd never been before, which seems like a very weird thing to admit. But the thing that struck me about San Francisco is that there were no children anywhere in the city proper. So I saw like a mom with her baby and just like stopped and marveled at the sight of somebody under the age of like 10. So yeah, San Francisco is obviously one of the most amazing cities in the world in terms of the innovation that comes out of it. No city in the world produces as much in terms of unicorns, tech unicorns. But yeah, I think they're going to have a problem. I mean, they already have a problem with housing costs, but I think they're also going to have a problem in a couple of years where you can't attract talent where people want to be able to have kids because it just seems impossible right now. Yeah, it feels very uh, Blade Runner to me, just in terms of a very hollowed out city with billionaires. And it's, it's a city where robot street cleaners will go along and clean up hypodermic needles left on the the streets from folks or whatnot. I I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a terribly big fan, although I, there obviously are some very nice places in San Francisco. You don't want to paint with too broad a brush for an entire city, but yeah, I, I do feel like there are some problems coming there. Yeah. It is pretty wild that I think I had read the other day that San Francisco has more intravenous drug users. That's just intravenous, right? Than it does high school students. And I think that kind of encapsulates the entire story there, or at least a big chunk of the story. Did someone like try and steal your phone in San Francisco? Am I am I mixing this up? Yes, that was a crazy experience. So the last time, or the time before the last time I was there, I was um, headed home. I had just been in Tahoe for a really great retreat. And I was headed home to the airport and I was like just about to call my dad and a man runs by and literally grabs my phone as I'm standing on a street corner. I'm like across from the San Francisco Mint. And so I just like within a split second, I just snapped. (laughs) Um, I made a split second decision to run after him and grab my phone back. And he seemed to be totally shocked that I would run after him. I don't know if maybe he'd done it before and usually he didn't meet that kind of resistance. But again, I would not recommend chasing a man, particularly if you or a young woman um, who's just stolen your phone. But I did it anyway, and I got the phone back. There's like a small scratch on the bottom. But I went to the Apple store just to replace the um, headphone jack that he had successfully stolen. And I told the officer next to, next to the store, and he just said, oh, yeah, yeah, that happens sometimes. <laughs> and apparently it's just like totally normal for people to be standing on a street corner on a Sunday in the middle of the day, right. and somebody just runs by and sees your phone. I think that's crazy. Um, and I think it's crazy to accept that as a normal thing in your city. Well, that might be a nice segue, talking about your iPhone, and you can extrapolate from that the uh, technology available to us all now. Just in the past week or so, AOC was quoted as saying that her generation, which I think is your generation too, uh, had never experienced prosperity as uh, as adults. I went and saw you are a BS from SMU in economics. So what's your take on uh, her statement that your generation has never experienced prosperity and what could be done about that? Yeah. So I don't think that's probably the most correct to say wholesale. Like we know that we're living in, you know, the wealthiest time in human history. So on its face, that statement is not fully correct. But I think probably what AOC is tapping into is the fact that, and this is, I've said this before, but I tend to think that when millennials are talking about socialism, 
they're not necessarily talking about, you know, state ownership of the means of production. I think what they're actually tapping into is, and what politicians like AOC are tapping into rather, is just a desire for a time in which American state capacity seemed just really endless, right? So before the Apollo 11 program, you know, we said, we're going to go to the moon uh, within a decade, and then we actually go to the moon within a decade, right? You commit 2.5% of GDP over a 10-year period to getting America to the moon, and then that happened. Mike Pence the other day said that we're going back to the moon, and nobody believes him, right? And the other part of that is, yeah, I think it's actually the story is just about state capacity. I don't think it's about socialism per se. And then you look at things like the rising student debt burden, um, the difficulty that a lot of young people have in finding their first house, a job market that is definitely like replacing jobs and, and creating new jobs, but the whether or not there's like a level of mismatch of, is always a subject of debate. So yeah, I tend to think that people on our side of the aisle focus a little too much on AOC's, you know, flashier statements without, I guess, looking at the underlying message that she's conveying or kind of taking time to think about why it resonates with young people. And I say this as a, and also a critic of AOC, but one who who thinks that her rhetorical strategy is interesting and maybe we shouldn't dismiss it. So I'll say, I think it's important to distinguish between overall prosperity in a society and particularly the state of things over the past decade for young people, right? So for example, if you were to go to France or Spain, those countries are probably richer now than they ever have been. But you also have youth unemployment. You know, if you're in your 20s, youth unemployment is something in the range of 40% and everyone's, you know, they're 28 and living with their parents still or whatever, right? So in the United States, the situation's not that bad, but it is the case that, you know, if you're AOC's age, 29, then, you know, you graduated from high school just in time for a big financial crisis and very slow, sluggish recoveries. And you you probably, if you went to school, you've got significant student loan debt, which would not have been true for past generations. So it might not feel that prosperous, even if, you know, you look at a chart and, you know, we're at the highest point on the chart as a society. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing, too, is just generally speaking, I think part of where a lot of our politics has lost its way is that people don't really feel optimistic about the future, right? Pew Research just released some survey data last week, um, or was it two weeks ago? Either way, showing that nearly half of Americans feel pessimistic about our future. And I think that is a, a really unfortunate and disheartening set. And so the question, I think, for a lot of politicians, and not just politicians, but people who are in tech, um, people who have any type of cultural influence in our in our country to be thinking about how can we revive a positive forward-looking vision of America, where it's been and where it's going. And I think that is sorely needed. And that's why people like, I think, AOC really resonate with people. Well, you know, I, one of the things that I, I think is really important is for those of us who you know, actually appreciate free enterprise, free markets, is to not just sort of stop at the idea of, oh, well, you know, we can all just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but to actually, you know, invest in, you know, peership and mentorship and try to teach others how they can succeed. And I saw something you wrote recently, uh, described as uh, the, the title was How to Eat an Elephant. And then Tyler Cohen wrote about it. And uh, his title and his sort of summary of your your writing was Tamara Winner on How to Generate Compound Returns, which uh, I th- thought was an interesting take. 
But talk a little bit, this is a recent piece of yours from back in December of 2018. Talk a little bit about this idea of how to eat an elephant and what you what you had in mind there, because I think it kind of plays into this, I don't want to say this in a dismissive way, but it's almost self-help, right? It's how you can kind of take control of your own life. So talk on that for a minute. Yeah, I think this is a really important idea, doing things that have a really um, just asymmetric value. But things that also, and by asymmetric value, I mean very little downside if you do them and you do them consistently, but the upsides can be massive. And I think part of this is just, I started thinking about this because over the past year, I had you know started feeling really frustrated with different work things or feeling like maybe where I was wasn't where I wanted to be. And of course, I think a lot of what we're fed in a bunch of different contexts, especially young people, is that they are like quick solutions to things. And I think anything worth doing takes a little bit of time to see returns, right? And so, or even the idea that you should just be constantly setting goals, which is not a bad thing at all, right? But if you, when you set goals, anybody who does that kind of habitually realizes that once you've hit that, if you hit that, you kind of have to set a new goal or even just setting goals doesn't really get you to the process of whatever the thing it is you want to accomplish. So it's really about building systems, habits, you might say, um, that take you from A to B, right? Like get you from like the state that just desiring the state that you like to get to, to actually being there. And so the blog post covered things like relationships. So going on lots of first dates or um, you basically like just creating opportunities for yourself uh, for serendipity or in personal finance, right? Like saving a certain amount of your income and putting it in some sort of a savings account, especially as it relates to retirement or thinking about things like drinking water, turning your phone off the an hour before bed, those sorts of things. These weren't really revolutionary statements, but I think the point of it is that once you do certain things for a long time, you start to see really incredible gains. And so you can apply this in a bunch of different contexts in your life. So I, I spotted on your uh, Twitter bio that you are a pro-natalist. What does that mean? I am a pro-natalist. And in the simplest form, it means that I think that children are good and we should have more of them. And you can think of pro-natalism in a couple of different ways. There's a policy element to it. So it's what can we do at different levels of government? What are the policy levers that are relevant to encouraging people to have more children or making it easier for people to have children? We know, for example, that in much of the developed world, completed fertility falls somewhere short of desired fertility. But there's also a sort of personal element to pronatalism. And that means adopting a general disposition, a cultural material disposition that favors children. That's pronatalism. So I, I guess you're not buying this uh, Malthusian idea that, that maybe with climate change, we all need to start slowing down on having children. Exactly. Right. So uh, Malthus was right in the time in which he was writing. Unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to see himself proven wrong. Right. So that's Malthusianism comes back just again and again, and it seems to just constantly regenerate itself and we just have to kill it every time. <laughs> but yes, I think it's ridiculous, the idea that you know we should just stop having children and that will solve climate change. For one thing, we know that the data on the impact that children have on climate change does not seem to show that just like more people is killing the environment. But the other thing too is if you're, if you're really an environmentalist, you might favor people having more kids because that means more environmentalists, right? <laughs> That's a little 
little silly, but I'm, I'm actually serious about that. Part of this gets back to something we were talking to later. The way that people talk about climate change indicates that they believe that, you know, the future that we are headed towards is one that's really bleak, one that's dystopian. You know, you see the reports that say within 12 years, the earth will become inhabitable. And if you're just like an individual person and you see and you're constantly fed the, the fact that the world is going to be uninhabitable in 12 years, what does that suggest for how you can actually make an individual contribution to that problem, right? Like if it's true that no matter what it is I do, the world is just going to end in 12 years, I don't know why anybody would bother to doing anything about climate change. And so I think that's one of the mistakes that people who I think rightly note the devastating impact on our climate or on our world of climate change or make is that they just don't take into account the kind of rhetoric that makes people activated to do something. The other parts of it is, is that you could be thinking about really important policy proposals like a carbon tax, like congestion pricing, like using nuclear energy, and that almost never factors into those really apocalyptic conversations. So I'm just, I'm not in love with the way that we talk about climate change in a broad sense. Well, you know, I was going to say too that, you know, the thing about having children, it is one of the most optimistic and hopeful things that a person does. It also, at the same time, really sort of makes you very serious about not just your legacy, but you, you now are tied to the future generation and you want, you know, a good Good parent, which is most parents, right? Most parents care about their children. They, they're they going to care about not just their children, but the world that they grew up in. And so it really does keep us tied together generation to generation. So it's a very hopeful thing. And they're responding to say there's some potential crisis. And the first thing we should do is stop doing one of the most hopeful things we could possibly do. It just seems very, very wrongheaded. Yeah. And I think what's really important too, is to remember that um, if it weren't for people deciding to have children under much worse circumstances than the ones that we now face, a lot of us really wouldn't be here, right? So again, we do live in one of the, like, in the richest time in human history. And yet there is this, I think there's this level of affluence that might also induce some sort of complacency and pessimism about the future that doesn't exist in places that are like just starting to develop. So the, that's something we always have to be fighting against. But as you pointed out, having children literally visualizing the future is is really important, I think, for a society, right? Again, you're making a commitment to the future of your country. And if you can't see the future of your country, it's really hard to favor the kinds of actions that will lead you to keep perpetuating it. And so when you when a society starts declining, when it starts aging, it can become this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like there are a bunch of macro trends that are all related to your society's aging, things like the new creation of firms, which ends up having um, impacts on the size of existing firms, concentration in certain firms, things like interest rates, um, the rate of innovation, and then the macro level, again, like personal satisfaction, things like not being able to complete desired fertility. These are all relevant. And I think, you, yeah, you want to be careful to avoid having a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where it comes to fertility. What is your favorite city? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I have one favorite city. I have like favorite cities for a lot of different things. So favorite city for architecture, or at least favorite city for architecture that I've been to recently. I love San Francisco, actually. San Francisco looks like a love letter to Victorian architecture. There's lots of Queen Anne style architecture, which has it sort of that it's Victorian architecture, but it highlights the porch. I think porches are amazing. They give you a view into the street. Um, they really, I guess, revive your, or I guess, keep alive your cities, your communities, sense of community, sense of togetherness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I think my favorite city that I've been to recently is probably, I don't think it counts as a city, but I was just in a little village in December in Zambia, um, just outside of Lake Tanganyika, just off Lake Tanganyika rather. 
And it was just incredibly naturally beautiful. We ended up meeting the chief of the village, um, waking up every day in December to 80 degree temperatures on a beach that you could run on on really clear water because there isn't a lot going on in that area. Um, That's probably my favorite place that I visited recently. All right. Well, uh, Tamara, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 